This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. Uh, I am Aaron Terrell, uh, joined as ever by my co-host Aaron Kimberly. Uh, but unusually, it is just the two of us today. Um, Aaron recently uh, wrote a wrote a blog piece about uh, kind of the the experience he had in his his local community and uh, his family post um, kind of unstealthing uh, yourself. Um, uh, a couple of years ago uh, when we launched all of this stuff. And um, so, yeah, we just wanted to kind of uh, give you the opportunity to tell more of how that all went down and uh, yeah, what's your, how, how it's going now. Yeah. It's um, you know, parts of the story have to have, have been out there, but I've, it's the first time that I kind of put piece together the whole story and some of the fallout, you know, we were on, um, on Glinner's show some time ago and and Benjamin Boyce, you know, talking about some of the activist backlash that I received as a result of um, speaking out of, against current, current practices in our healthcare system. Um, but the part that wasn't told is just sort of how that unraveled and trickled through, you know, rippled through my my community and 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 my family so that that's the part that we haven't really talked about yet so we'd love to sort of hash that out a little bit yeah yeah and i think it's really useful to give people that perspective i know most of my angle in talking about all this all along has been well and most of my personal concern too when when i started doing this my only concern was the backlash that you received was from from the the the, the radical trans activist uh portion out there who would be uh, obviously very much uh, anti the stuff that we're doing and the stuff that we're talking about. And that's, that's when I kind of like put all my, all my personal socials on, on private and kept this just to Twitter and to the, the podcast and the organization and everything is my concern was, was not actual transphobia. It was attacks from other trans people for speaking out. Um, but you obviously, um, what you recently experienced is is kind of the old fashioned uh, uh, transphobia that um, that, to be honest, me in a kind of like really blue corner of the world has only ever been. Um, I, I transitioned in 2012. It's literally only been, and the trans activists will also hate me saying this. It's only been social currency. You know, it's only ever been. Um, uh, I mean, I was stealth for a while, but. You know, I, I dropped it in job interviews, things like that, because I knew it was social currency. Um, uh, but um, you you had a, a pretty different uh, experience of all this, A, being completely stealth for, for, for a very long time and then unstealthing yourself as a result of the, the, the activism you were doing against the trans activists. Um, Anyway, I'm kind of taking this over here, but yeah, if you want to uh, kind of explain, like you, so I think it was, I think it was, just, it was your wife who was basically like, you know, since since you're putting this out in the public domain, we've got to kind of kind of let the kids know, and and um, and kind of things yeah. went, went downhill um, from there. So yeah, because I mean, I I wasn't living in the trans community, you know, and I, and I 
I hate that word, but I don't know what other word to use, but I wasn't, that wasn't my life. And that wasn't the point of transitioning. I didn't transition to be trans and identify mm-hmm. as trans. And I didn't really, I didn't really feel like I fit within the whole, you know, queer culture. And that, right. so that just wasn't something that interested me. I just wanted kind of a regular white picket fence sort of life and living in a small rural community. I grew up in a small rural community and that's, you know, where I, where I ended up again as an adult and um, living stealth in a community like that is, isn't a necessity. And it's, I had never, I was never dishonest with my wife about it. I mean, right early in our, our dating during the period of dating, that was something that I was very open and transparent about. So it's not that I went in and was living this secret life or anything, but it wasn't something that I, felt a need to go around sort of announcing everywhere I go. Right. I mean, it, mm-hmm. I, I'd reached a point in my transition. It's not, not even so much that I feel like I'm exactly, you know, biological male, that that wasn't ever my thinking. I just, I think the, the transition worked in the sense that I just stopped thinking about gender. I just mm-hmm. didn't care anymore. It, it wasn't, I just was working and living my life and, and gender wasn't really on my mind. And I didn't feel that really feel a need. I was functioning. I and I just didn't feel a need to go around announcing it everywhere. But in a small town, you know, you, you pick up on thing on attitudes and stuff from people, you know, going to to dinner parties or whatever, and someone would make a comment about about trans stuff and you kind of get a sense, okay, they're probably not going to be someone that I want to to be close enough to 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 tell them my personal story. Um, but things were happening in that little town, you know, because of our um our liberal government and some of the trans activist mandates that they've started implementing um you know it it doesn't work in small communities and so one example is during our our federal election um the election staff at the at the senior center they were required sorry my dog's distracting they were (laughs) so the, the the staff were required so if you weren't on their registry list um you could you could still vote as long as you had, you know broad ID or or whatever. But they one of their um, policies was they had to ask which sex you are. So if you can imagine, you know, a small town and, and it's a kind of a it's a kind of a rough around the edges town and a lot of truckers and bikers and loggers, you know, very working class mm-hmm. guys being asked, "Are you male or female?" Mm-hmm. And that those kinds of policies and and you know the culture war that's going on and and how I, ideas about what it is to be trans or queer or whatever gay or whatever the way that is being taught in throughout you know the educational system and through government programs and, and stuff it it's you know trickled out into small town you know farming communities where it, it just it doesn't fly and it's in its it's kind of kindling in the culture. It's, it is kindling. Yeah. I mean, it, it it ends up pissing people off and right. and alienating us from our experience, rather than helping them actually understand our experience and mm-hmm. and normalizing it that way. Instead, they're just making things very culturally weird, and it's actually, I think, driving transphobia um, in those communities because that is they feel like their culture it, it is being threatened and it is a kind of colonization you know when Mm -hmm. it starts to come from 
um, high-end government, you know, at the level of provincial or federal government, mandating these ideas, which which really are coming from queer theory. It's mm-hmm. it's a kind of cultural colonization. We, we don't seem to learn through history when government imposes philosophical or political beliefs onto people and the ways that that's actually destroying cultures throughout yeah. Canada. And it's pissing people off and they're blaming, you know, when, when it's being done in the name of trans rights or LGBT rights, we're the ones that, 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 that lands on our shoulders, right? That resentment and that hostility. 100%. And I, I feel like that's actually getting worse and worse and worse. So, you know, as, as trans activists are celebrating the successes of, of writing these things into law, it's actually making things a lot less safe for, for people that are just getting on with their lives in other communities. And they don't, they seem completely blind to that because they live within their own little echo, echo chambers yeah. where all of their friends are speaking and thinking the same way, but those yeah. ideas don't translate outside of those echo, echo chambers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, I was of that milieu, not, 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 not like, you know, writing law or anything, but I was, you know, I was of that, that mindset that this is right, you know, and like we can by, by will force people, you know, force the, the, the hateful masses to, uh, you know, I, I don't, thinking long-term, it makes no sense, but it's, but you, this, there's this sense of righteousness to it that, that really fuels you. And you, you know, that this is right. And that, you know, these, these other people, they're just, they're ignorant and they're hateful and we will win because we, we are right. And it's just so, it, it, yeah, it, it, it goes nowhere good because, uh, yeah. Anyway, and, you, and, you the te- you know, and, and the teaching and stuff about, you know, there's a hundred genders and all of that, that's being taught in elementary schools and, and high middle schools, high schools in those small communities too. So these kids are going to school and learning about, you know, the whole gender spectrum and that there's no such thing as boys and girls. And then they're going home and telling the, their, their parents, Hey, this is, this is what I learned in school. And so that's a part of it too, right. Is, is part of that mandate. Like, like I don't object to, basic civil liberties i think that is definitely something that had been worth fighting for that we can't be fired from a job or or um you know or beaten up or something because we're trans or or you know gay or lesbian so i agree with that stuff being mandated like we need basic laws to protect people uh on that civil liberties level but it's it's the looney tune lands that Mm-hmm. that they've gone into right teaching these concepts that are culturally cultural based concepts they go queer theory isn't isn't natural law and it doesn't help people to understand gender dysphoria and the different types of gender dysphoria and what our experiences actually are it teaches this this cultural stuff that not everyone is is going to accept and i i really disagree with mandating those concepts into into law I think that's what's what's creating this this culture war and this friction. And I don't think that's necessary for us to have civil liberties, you know, because gender dysphoria impacts people from all different kinds of cultures. And we should get to choose our political affiliations. I mean, that's part of our freedom as people in North America, that we should have the freedom to vote for whoever we want to vote for, to to have a faith or not. And we, why wouldn't we have all the same 
the same rights, human rights as any other Canadian or, or American. So, you know, trans activists are promoting this very culturally specific um, way of thinking that, you know, for people that are trans and conservative or trans and Christian or trans and something, you know, it, it, we get to, we should be able to integrate into our own communities, not have to, you know, join this cult-like entity because we happen to have this condition. So what ended up happening is, you know, because um, I felt like the activists had forced my hand, you know, when I discovered what it, what has been happening with our healthcare system, um, I felt I initially started speaking out within the clinical community and that obviously it became very quickly apparent to me that that was not a welcomed conversation within, um, you know, just the, the, the clinical um, community of practice. So that's could you, really, could you briefly touch on that? Like that, that, what that was, what that was like, well, just, just for a second. Yeah. So in terms of what I was connected to at the time, I was on a clinical listserv with community practice with other clinicians and some lawyers and various people with a, you know, a vested interest in um, trans healthcare practices. So I was on that. So that was just for our province. I don't even know how many people were on that listserv. I'm guessing maybe a couple hundred. Um, and so there was that and there was weekly mentorship calls and I guess that was the extent of it. I, I had some contact with the provincial health authority because they have a department that oversees how these medical practices happen and they provide educational resources for both navigational support for trans people seeking these services, but also education for um, and supporting clinicians that are wanting to, to do the work. So, so that so it was, I guess it was on the, the clinical email listserv where I was expressing some of my concerns um, because people, people were raising things like uh, there was a question about Abigail Schreier, for example, they had just learned about her and were asking, hey, does anyone really know anything about her? She sounds really turfy to me. And um, I think I, so I think I chimed in a little bit during that conversation that that there are a number of people that are engaging in debates about ideology and and how we think and understand these things that aren't necessarily come they're not um, radical feminists and they're not advocating for the exclusion of of trans people they're just concerned about um you know the ROGD phenomenon and the healthcare system and the lack of assessment and and speaking out about that but any anything that goes against the dogma you know the orthodoxy of of everything trans and queer automatically gets painted with a really broad brush well that's just a turf and um so there was that conversation and then and then later there was a conversation about what was having happening in the UK with the Tavistock clinic and and the, the temporary sort of ban um, after the judicial review that happened. So they had, they put the pause on uh, puberty blockers for young people. So that became part of the conversation. And I said, well, I, I actually agree with that. I think that's ethical to review the evidence. And so that, I think that's what caused the biggest, um, okay. the, you know, the, the biggest stir. And so there was a big meeting at work and, um, and then, and then right at that time was when 
the Canadian Parliament was debating our conversion therapy law. And so yeah. once I kind of pieced all of this together, I mean, there were a lot of moving parts and I was trying to, you know, piece it together uh, in a hurry. But that's when I realized, okay, so the activists are using legislation like our conversion therapy law as a way of codifying queer theory into law. Um, so that, you know, the way that our conversion therapy bill was written was talking about gender identity. They didn't even talk about gender dysphoria at all. It was all about this gender identity um, concepts, which is is all just, you know, a political strategy and queer theory. But it, by writing it into legislation like that, so, so our legislation is written in a way that says um, that it would be illegal and up to a three-year prison sentence for attempting to change someone's gender identity. So what does that mean? So someone comes in saying they identify as a frog or a tree gender. I mean, we now have all these ridiculous genders that have been totally fabricated by, you know, Tumblr culture. So a counselor to explore that, what the meaning of that with, with a person and potentially challenge them, you know, that, that there's no such thing as a frog gender that that would be considered conversion therapy and and illegal. So that has far reaching implications to go at the same time I'm I'm you know seeing and assessing these very very vulnerable youth with multiple things going on very complex presentations you know they might have autism and come from you know foster families and lots of trauma and so these are the the people the young people that I was assessing while the trans activists are writing into law that I'm not really allowed to you know, explore with that client, you know, what's really going on for them with the potential outcome of them realizing, okay, this was, this was indoctrination into a way of thinking, or I was, you know, misunderstanding my autism symptoms. There's so many different possible outcomes. So I was just really concerned about the ways in which that legislation would prevent us from doing really good clinical work with, with people. So that's when that's when I came onto the radar of, of some of the local trans activists, and they, you know, were making calls to my employer and trying to get me fired, which was which was very stressful. And that that is what really lit the fire under my ass to start speaking publicly about this. But everything after that point, you know, it just felt like my life unraveled because the first thing that had to happen and, and I don't blame my employer for this. I'm actually very grateful for my previous employer that they didn't, they could have just fired me outright, you know, for, for transphobia, you know, but fortunately I think they, they knew me well enough and they know I was able to talk to them about where I'm coming from. So I think they did um, move me out of that position. They felt like they felt that because most of what I was speaking to was how we're treating children, and minors that they felt like there would be a conflict of interest working with minors at the same time as as advocating for what I was advocating for. So, so I get it, and and in hindsight, it actually did I think protect me from anyone being able to claim there was a conflict of interest. But it was still stressful and disappointing because I really loved working with youth, and I think I was doing good work with them to have been removed from that position. So that was a strain. Um, and then COVID hit and I was working from home because of COVID and, and so everything just started to unravel at that point um, for me and, um, and yeah, basically forced my hand to, to come out and, 
uh, from being stealth. And uh, like it hadn't landed in my local community yet. I mean, most of the work that we're doing is kind of international. And so I don't, I don't know if anyone in the community ever would have, you know, stumbled upon our podcast or our website, but I guess there was that possibility, right? If anyone were to Google me, it probably would have come up. So there was a chance that someone in the community could have stumbled upon our, our the work that we were doing. And there was a possibility that that meant that the kids could find out. And so um, my wife felt it was important to to tell the kids so that that was coming from us, not from the community. But mm-hmm. um, the reason I hadn't told the kids, and it's not that I wanted to lie to them, but the, I think the reason why I had reservations about telling the kids was just that whole situation with their dad and how volatile he was and unstable he was and how he he was hell bent to find any dirt he could on us, you know, any, any weapon he could use against us. And so I was concerned that I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to count on the kids to keep that private. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt if they had taken that to their dad, it would escalate things. And that's exactly what happened. Whether they found out directly or, or indirectly. Yeah. yeah. And then that kind of trickled out into your, your, your whole community. It did, yeah. Trickled out into the into the community. I mean, I had I had no control over it at that point, right? I mean, the the kids, you know, they were going to tell whoever they were going to tell, and, um, you know, so once once that information was no longer within my control, it just kind of it just kind of spread, you know, like a like a wildfire, and. And I could see changes in my relationships as a result of that. And, you know, and my fear about it too. I mean, that put a lot of pressure on on me to, to feel like I was being outed and, and had no control over who knew or what they knew or how that would, information was being mm-hmm. presented to them. So that, I mean, I started to feel less and less comfortable in that community and, uh, and, and there is like a lot of transphobia and homophobia in communities like that. So it's a, you know, it's a really, a, it's a, it's a tightrope walk to do what we're doing because on one hand, the trans activists are angry, about what we're saying, cause we're breaking ranks and, and, you know, breaking away from the orthodoxy and you know, we're heretics in this, mm-hmm. in this cult like religion. So there's that, and we we expected that kind of backlash because that was the initial backlash we got, and then and then we had you know the the radical feminists like KD, you know, making videos about us saying absolutely awful things, and then yeah. in the midst of that, I I have a you know this community and and this family that's that's falling apart around me. So um, it's a tightrope because we're not making anybody happy, yeah, at, you know, and and doing it because it's just the right thing to do. Yeah. 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 It's kind of a, yeah, a, a triangle of, yeah, animosity. But, and like what you were saying about the, the, you were, you were moved from your position working with, with youth when like you were obviously the one who was trying to protect them from the, you know, mandates from on high. That was essentially just, you know, medical negligence effectively from the people who are purporting to care about them. Um, yeah. It, it, it's you know kind of 
kind of a microcosm of what's what's happening large scale with the transactivism versus <clears throat> you know the rea the reality on the ground is that that they yeah everything they're doing is just is achieving the exact opposite of what they purport to uh want to was, achieve. yeah that was the frustrating thing about not being allowed to work with youth is like I'm advocating for the, the safety of these youth. I'm advocating for really good care for these youth. And so to kind of, to be told that I was somehow a danger or a harm to youth because of my position is just so backwards. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the, none of the complaints were coming from the, the youth themselves. I mean, as far as I know, like, the work that we were doing was appreciated by the community. It's just that once the activists got hold of it, they started a campaign. And um, and one of the activists was was actually not a trans person herself. She's a mom of two trans kids and runs one of the parent groups. So, I mean, that's that's a can of worms right there. But it's you know she was one of the ones that locally was trying to boycott our clinic and telling anyone that came into our group, don't go to that center for anything. Don't go to that center. And that's really a disservice to these young people because we're doing good work with them, and and we we weren't just we're not a we weren't a gender clinic. We were just a multi-service, multidisciplinary clinic for youth that youth could show up, and we would assess what they needed and potentially help them in a lot of different ways. You know, housing and um, social, the various social services, income services, mental health, primary care. So to tell youth don't go to this clinic because of what Aaron is doing and, and they didn't fire him. Therefore the whole clinic can't be trusted is such a disservice to all of those youth who potentially would really benefit from the services we were providing. Right. Cause the gender thing, that was just a small portion. A, a very small portion of, of what the work that we were doing, but it, it was such an ideal. I was excited, initially excited to do some of the trans care work there because there, there was such potential because we were a multi-service, multidisciplinary clinic. When youth came in, we could see them as whole people. Right. And, <clears throat> and connect them to, with all different kinds of services, you know, while we were also talking to them about their gender dysphoria and, and those are their goals for that part. I mean, we, it wasn't, we had more than just the medical stuff to offer them, which I think is, the ideal, mm -hmm. the ideal um, setup for for this kind of work, you know, because I mean, even if some, even if someone is going to go on a medical pathway, so let's say someone was going to get, you know, double mastectomy, well, they need a, a they need a secure income in order to be able to do that. They need a secure place to live in order to do that. I mean, we can't send them to, you know, the streets after after surgery and expect that outcome to be good. I mean, they'd be at risk of infections and stuff, or if someone was going to get, you know, the genital surgeries done and, and let's say a vaginoplasty where they have to dilate on a regular basis, well, they need a clean, secure environment in which to do that. So even if some, you know, we decided that the medical pathway was appropriate for, for somebody, there was still so much more that we could offer to support them psychologically. And, you know, we were, we were talking about really bringing in a lot of community service providers and doing things like yoga for stress for stress reduction or massage therapy or you know a lot of different kinds of services for these for these young people to really build them up and improve their mental health and their sense of social connection and so we had big plans for what we could offer um, and unfortunately that kind of got all 
ripped out from under us. Yeah, it sounds a lot more uh, beneficial to the kids than what <clears throat> that <clears throat> that article that just was released uh, yesterday uh, from the free press is like, yeah, what, what you're describing versus what's going on for these kids in, in the U.S. is, um, yeah, a, a very, very different story. Uh, yeah, that's really sad. Yeah, and that's and then the model being described in that in that article, and we can link that to the liner notes too, so people know what we're talking about. But it was a very yeah, very detailed insider view of how these clinics are operating, with basically no assessment that anyone can walk in and they're just given a prescription for puberty blockers or hormones with with very little support and or assessment or or psychotherapy or anything, and that is the model that. Um, was really being pushed on on how my clinic was supposed to be doing that work, and I, I refuse. I refuse to do it that way. I mean, that way it wasn't. I don't. I don't really agree with doing that work with any age. Like not even the right. fact that they were youth, but it. I mean, there are vulnerable adults as well who, who can get trapped in this and and not really think it all through, or because of just their their desperation to feel better, might be rushing decisions, might not have you know, accurate information. Like there's still a lot of work that needs to be done with adults as well. And I remember, you know, 15 years ago or whatever it was when I transitioned, there was still a lot of support groups and psychotherapy options. And there were still a lot more services geared to us that I think were helpful. And I feel like all of that is being dismantled, you know, that they want just any, every GP out there to just write these orders, whether they're competent or not and and then so so you walk away with your with your hormones but it's complicated transition is complicated and it never stops being complicated it's complicated i mean what happened with my family is part of the complication it, it you know living stealth and even though my wife knew and that was never a secret i mean it was still a strain on our relationship because uh, I'm trying to fit into her community and her friends and her, you know, her peer group and not really feeling like I could ever really get close to them because if they knew this about me, they would probably reject me. And, and so that was complicated. And then her feeling like, you know, she was, she was doing her best to understand and support me, but this wasn't her world, right? That she doesn't come from the, the queer community. And I, and that was, that was part of my attraction. I didn't want to be part of the career community either. I just wanted to help her raise her kids and, and, and have a life together and build a life together. And so it, it, it wasn't for me, it, it, I didn't mind that that wasn't her world. I didn't want to live in that world either. So I was doing my best to integrate into her world and she was doing her best to to support me. I did feel, at least in the in the first few years, it felt I did feel well supported. And she, you know, she has a big heart and was really trying to do her best to understand and um, and support me. You know, she went with me to Texas to support me through getting the metoidioplasty done, which I was so grateful for. And um, but she, you know, she said that have feeling like you have to keep a secret is is a strain. Even though she didn't feel like it's not like she felt like ashamed and like it was a dirty secret, but just to not be open about it, to not be able to tell people, because people would say, well, why did he have to go to Texas for surgery? Like people ask questions, right? When things don't right. really add up for them. And she didn't feel like she could just come out and say, yeah, this is the surgery he was having. Or, you know, people would notice the scars on my chest and ask about them, you know, 
because obviously I had surgery for something and to feel like you can't just speak openly about it. I mean, that's a strain on anyone that lives stealth, but that strain and that the isolation that that causes impacts those around us as well. Not just our, not just ourselves. So, so that was something that um, was always ever present, but there's a reason why we do live stealth. And this is the lesson that, you know, that my wife learned is when you start telling people you can't control what they do with that information and what they think about that, that, and um, yeah. So it's like, what, what is worse, the isolation of not feeling like you can tell people or telling people. And now the whole community doesn't like you and doesn't respect you. And I do there, I wasn't the only trans person there either. Um, there were, you know, at least three other trans people in that area that I know of that are all living stealth as well for the exact same reason that I was like just trying to live their lives and working and I'm terrified that anyone would, would figure, find out that they were trans. You were obviously also seeing um, like hit like the youth coming into that clinic. They were, they were locals or how far were they coming? It's like, was this something, cause this is kind of hearkening back to what you were saying. Like there used to be services that were kind of like when you were transitioning, that were intended to help people integrate as you know, their, their, their goal gender essentially. Right. Like mm-hmm. that was part of the transition process was, um, but that, that's that's shifted. So now it's not a case of, okay, how do we assist these people in you know transitioning from female to male to integrate into reintegrate into the world accordingly or or the opposite direction? Now it's that 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 the whole purpose has shifted. It's like how do we protect this trans person from these cis oppressors? So it's all about right. like like you know, kind of stagnating that identity as trans and then this whole us versus them, you know, a, a oppression thing. And <clears throat> I'm wondering, the, like, so the, the the youth that you were seeing, I'm wondering how many of them were of, because especially in that community, right? So they're, they're in that small town environment and like how many of their ideas are coming from the internet where they're, where they're being told you are trans and you have to basically fight you know, the, 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 the cis people around you, um, which in a lot of, like in your community, that's, that's entirely true, you know, yeah. like it, <laughs> excuse me. And a lot of these kids who are absorbing these ideas are in, you know, metropolitan blue, you know, Western cities. That That's not, that's not the reality, but, yeah. um, but in, in a lot of, you know, in a lot of places in North America, that is 100% the reality. Um, but I guess, yeah. What, what was their, if you know, like what was their, their thought process is like, okay, am I going to transition in this community and live as male or live as female, or am I solidifying this adopted trans identity? And how is that going to work in my small town community where it's only going to make my life exactly as hard as the uh, activists are telling me uh, it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the clinic that I was working in wasn't in my small town. It was in a nearby city. So I I had quite a commute to to the nearest city to do, to do that. But we, so we, our catchment area was just sort of in, in and around the city, but because there were so few services geared towards uh, trans health, we were making exceptions to that. So we had people driving like two, three hours to come to us in, in order to receive the trans care services. 
Um, and that was the only, that was the only time we kind of made an exception to our catchment area rule. So we did have people coming from small towns and and throughout the suburbs and stuff. And I think I would say I saw a mix where some some I felt like had sort of the classic gender dysphoria and they just wanted to live as the opposite sex and integrate into society. And I found with those ones, they didn't want to have anything to do with the trans community at all. Like, cause we, we did have, we were trying to set up some, um, some peer groups for the youth. And I noticed that, that the ones that would probably end up become like transsexual, you know, in the way that, that we use that word, that they just wanted to live as the opposite sex, blend in and, and just successfully live their lives. They were the ones that I don't think were indoctrinated into any of that. And they just had straight up gender dysphoria and they just wanted to be more comfortable in their own skin. So those were the ones I noticed that they didn't actually benefit from the services that we were setting up because they wanted nothing to do with all that queer theory crap mm-hmm. and felt seemed terrified of the idea of knowing other trans people because the image of trans people out there is a bunch of, you know, screaming idiots, right? So they, so I, I actually felt like the healthiest kids that were coming in were the ones saying, I don't want to, why would I want to have anything to do with that culture? And so they, and they, so they got, you know, they would get their hormones and disappear and hopefully they have support in their lives, but certainly weren't benefiting from any of the the services that we were creating to, to try to support them, which is a shame. And that's how I felt going through the system too, is like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be part of a club. This isn't about joining, you know, if I wanted to be part of a club, I, I don't know, join the lions club or something like, I don't need a club and I, or a new identity. So I didn't feel like I didn't go through many of the groups and stuff because they were uncomfortable for me because it was so much of that indoctrination stuff. So there were those kids, but I would say that they were probably the minority. And then there were kids that were obviously online and learning the queer theory stuff and, 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 you know, coming in little groups to the clinic, you know, three, three kids from the same school coming in together, asking for hormones and very much into the, you could tell just by talking to them that their understanding of trans was the queer theory take, not the gender dysphoria take. But I didn't, I didn't feel at liberty to, I'm not sure if I was even allowed to talk to them about what gender dysphoria is. I I don't know if that's even permitted in this system anymore. So that, that became what the discomfort for me, right. Is, is you're seeing these people. It's like, like some of the, there was, I can't, I can't say any, any specific details, but there was one that was obviously psychotic. So that was a, you know, referral onto a different kind of service. And there were lots of different presentations. Uh, and you're being told, well, if, if you take the time to understand their story and what's kind of going on beneath the surface, that's gatekeeping and that's not allowed. So that was the accusation. It wasn't even, the accusation from the activist wasn't even, you know, you're doing unsafe work, you're doing, um, um, you're transphobic. The accusation was you're gatekeeping. Right. So back then, so originally it wasn't even like the accusation of conversion therapy. It was just, it was gatekeeping. just gatekeeping. Yeah. Right. And like I think that, I think that was the that, sin, right? This this horrible word right. gatekeeping. 
and I think that's what what they realize is like they had to sh- they had to shift that language, and now they call it conversion therapy because they have to like because because any r- normal rational you know ethical person like providing this care is gonna be like okay gatekeeping is kind of you know it, that's a good thing you know we want to <laughs> or, or as Buck puts it safekeeping you know we want to yeah. stop people you know getting getting medical uh, uh, treatment that's that's not right for them that's not needed that could ultimately harm them and so. So they they change that to put it under the the you know back under the queer banner of it's 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 conversion therapy to ask you know where are these feelings coming from what's your experience yada yada it's like to <laughs> to, to to ask those questions and to kind of dig you know anywhere beneath the surface it's like oh you're trying to change somebody from trans to cis like you're trying to change from someone from gay to straight and that, man that branding has just worked so so well I know. <laughs> kudos it's... it's it's evil but kudos yeah exactly. <laughs> Yeah, the way that they're just kind of codifying this stuff in. And um, I mean, the city that I was working in, it, it wasn't one of the major metropolises. It was a smaller city, so a little more conservative and hadn't hadn't been indoctrinated in the same way that maybe a larger center would be. So when when the health authority came in and we're bringing in these ideas and the, and the mom that leads that, that group is part, is, you know, kind of has close ties with um, with that program, so it was bringing in a lot of these ideas into a city that, and I felt like a lot of people in the city, it's like, I'm, I'm just, they're just not buying it. And I, and I, and I gave that feedback to the health authority, you know, it's like, you're bringing these ideas into communities because they're, that's, that's one of their, I think their goals is to um, increase access to services throughout the province. So going into like little Northern communities and stuff, you know, and, and trying to, bring these ideas into those communities it's it's not going to work in the same way that it's going to work in like a city like vancouver and it does make sense i mean the 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 backlash that we're seeing now is very much like using the words like groomer and stuff because people very much feel like these these ideas are basically being force-fed to their children and they and if they you know have anything to say about it well then they're you know, we, we know this, but yeah, it's just a perfect example of, of uh, you know, I, the way you're describing it is I can, I can now see so clearly um, how these people are feeling and why they're feeling it and why there's so much anger. And <clears throat> yeah. Well, like First Nations communities, for example, but, you know, because the town I was living in was, was very close to, um, to a reservation and, and the woman that I, that I spoke to, um, it's now I'm living closer to her, but that woman I spoke to when I wrote that article about the, you know, the, what two spirit means within, oh, within yeah. those cultures. Yeah. I mean, I think they're really feeling um, the impact of these, these queer theory indoctrination that's being imposed by our government now is that, that, that isn't consistent with the, you know, ancient cultural understanding of what two spirit meant. So it's you know two spirit has now been added to the LGBTQI you know this and never ending list of letters. So two spirit is is now you often see that in that list of letters, where the, and you see news reports and stuff about this intentional um, movement to queer some of these northern communities, where a lot of the First Nations are. And then it, so it's it's cultural appropriation. It is. It's cultural. It's taking. So it's taking two spirit. Oh, yep. Yep. You're back. Yep. yep. 
you know, adding the two spirit onto this this queer project, but at the same time going into these communities and teaching queer theory rather than the ancient mm-hmm. understanding, uh, you know, cultural understanding of what two spirit meant, which was part of their spiritual beliefs. Um. So you know, I think some of the First Nations are are feeling the impact of that, that it is a cultural appropriation all over again, while our government is trying to apologize for having culturally appropriated them in the past, is now doing a whole brand new cultural appropriation, shoving this academia, these very, you know, these these ideas that came from academia, shoving that into these into these communities and the impact on the on the communities and the overrepresentation of First Nations people being medicalized for you know i think you know because now they're being taught that this new model of understanding those experiences of gender nonconformity and sexual orientation so rather than them understanding that through their own cultural lens are now understanding it from a queer theory lens and are definitely you know in our um when they uh do surveys on the community you can see these the number breakdowns of where these people are coming from and and their um, national nationality, their their ethnicity, and First Nations people, at least here in Canada, I don't know if it's the same in the states, but here in Canada, First Nations people are overrepresented in those who are identifying as trans. Oh, really? Hmm. I don't know if that's the case in the U.S. But I'm all. I'm wondering too, though, if that has something because there's an overrepresentation of. Well, <clears throat> there's at least in the U.S. There's a a, a lot of First Nations, uh, or we we say Native Americans, uh, uh, people in um, the foster care system, um, and I'm wondering if that's a correlation rather than a cultural one. It's mm-hmm. a it's a case of um, yeah, that same kind of uh, trauma and yeah, 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 because yeah, there's a lot of obviously. Um, at least in the U.S., a lot of we don't. I mean, that's going into a different story, but like alcoholism and, and something just like you know, um, you know, generational poverty and things like that. That they're the same things you know that affect all communities in that that can lead people to, yeah, to to yeah, seeking um, yeah, a solution and and calling it trans, you know. So now we have that First Nations uh, Canadian transsexual woman speaking out, um, feeling that. She was rushed through, through medicalization and now regrets her surgery and has applied for medically assisted death because of that trans regret and is now speaking out about what is essentially the sterilization of First Nations young people. What are those numbers? Do you know? I don't remember offhand, but I remember when I saw the survey... So I took that percentage and kind of compared that to the national percentage, because I mean, if this is gender dysphoria, you would think this would be evenly distributed mm-hmm. among people, right? So, um, and that's when I realized that it, you know First Nations were overrepresented, as was I think foster care, and there have been studies about that. About I think it was an Australian study about the overrepresentation of kids in foster care identifying as trans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think they they did have a stat on the Canadian survey about immigrant families, and that seemed overrepresented compared to I looked up you know how many what percentage of our population are are immigrants, and that was overrepresented in the trans care stats as well. Interesting. That that really surprises me actually. 
Huh. Okay. But I wonder if that's all part of just, you know, trauma, stress. I don't know what that would be about. So it's, you know, it's hard to read into kind of why these things would happen, but it is, I think it's alarming when, when you do see that though, like why would mm-hmm. gender dysphoria? I mean, if we kind of take it out of that queer theory framework and back into reality, right? This is mm-hmm. gender dysphoria. Why would we see an overrepresentation of gender dysphoria in foster foster kids or immigrant kids or, or kids of other races and nationalities? Well, I, I definitely, with foster care, I definitely see it as, as likely resulting from abuse, right? Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, and then in need of a community, right? Need of need of a, a, a yeah, like a, a a community group to belong to. And I think, <clears throat> well, I'll get back to that. But um, with uh, with the 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 kind of more like maybe immigrants coming from a more conservative who 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 have a more conservative um, kind of culture that they're that they that they've left or that their family still uh, like. I'm wondering if 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 that's more to do with uh, homophobia. Right. I'm wondering if in these small minority communities, uh, it, it has more to do with uh, transitioning out of homosexuality. Right. I'm wondering if that could be those numbers that would make sense to me. Um, uh, I don't know that if that's the case with in, in First Nations peoples, if. if um, yeah, if homosexuality is much more taboo than it is mm-hmm. in uh, more Western uh, cultures. Uh, well, obviously, that's. You know what I mean? Um, but like, I wonder if that has some bearing there. Whereas I think with a lot of the kids who that like, I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of the, the, the kids that you were seeing um, like in the cities, those are basically all white kids, right? Like white teenage girls is my, um, my take on it. And I think, and those like, so at least the ones who, who are seeking out the services that are provided, like you were saying there was the, the kids who were transitioning and very much just wanted and they wanted to just transition. They didn't want anything to do with the with the queer community stuff. I think those are the ones who might who have who have a sense of a sense of community, a sense of belonging, a sense of culture. Um, and then the people. This has been my perspective anyway. The, the people who 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 are who are transitioning and clinging on to that kind of queer theory stuff and wanting the whole the whole trans thing it typically i i feel like it's a need of community a need of sense of belonging like you said you didn't need the club i didn't need the club some people need the club they're, yeah. they're in it for the club you know yeah and, and i definitely picked that up yeah. from you know assessing some of these youth right, where they were they described histories of being very very lonely i mean you know a lot of yeah. them had autism or adhd where they struggled socially and were very lonely kids and they, it's like yeah there's this club that i can join as long as i kind of play along with 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 the orthodoxy, then I get to belong with these other quirky kids. So I definitely picked up on that with some of them. And I did keep stats on just the youth that I assessed. And it was a small sample because it was just the youth that I saw, but it mapped onto, you know, when you see those graphs of the demographics that we're seeing from all over the world, like Tavistock Clinic and where where that sex ratio flipped. So just a little snapshot of like that year that I was doing the work and assessing these young people, that the trends that I saw in that population mapped perfectly onto what seems to be happening everywhere in the Western world, where it's most, mostly white, gay, or bisexual girls okay. who had autism, um, abuse histories, were in foster care, very complex. 
So it's just, I, I could, and I just feel like the, the queer theory contingent of, of how, you know, that has control over how this care is being done, they seem to celebrate those numbers. It's like, yes, let's, how can right. we even get more? How can we, like, I know our health authority had this survey that they were trying to get, you know, every clinic or, or practice out there using this intake screener to try to identify who are the trans kids before they even identify it for themselves, which in other areas of medicine is, is good practice, right? You want to try to catch things as early as possible and intervene because that's where your best outcomes are, right? If someone had diabetes, you want to catch it early before damage is done to your body. So it's, it's that way of thinking is how can we, how can we, how can we find these kids and be more proactive in finding these kids so that you're not even waiting for them to come to a clinic saying, I want these interventions, but how do we catch them on intake and in all these different you know, clinics and disciplines so that we can intervene early? How is that not recruitment? <laughs> like it's just, it's, it's frightening. Yeah. Yeah. But so they celebrate the fact like, yes, these were all these people that weren't receiving any help before. And so they celebrate these rising numbers rather than thinking critically about why are these numbers rising and why would certain races or certain trauma backgrounds or certain other diagnoses, why would we be seeing an over-representation over of those populations, which I looked at those numbers and I felt alarmed by, by those numbers, but they, they seem because this, this ideology is so blinding, they're not able to think critically anymore. And that is what's created this perfect storm of very unsafe care. And that's why I speak out. That's why you speak out. I'm glad to see more and more people speaking out like this, you know, that former case manager at that clinic, you know, a beautifully you know, articulated snapshot of what's happening in these clinics. And it absolutely is medical malpractice. But you and I, you know, and, and just sort of talking personally about my story and and some of the how it did unravel my life. I mean, we kind of talked about that and, and decided that that might be helpful information to, to put out there to the world, that there is a cost when you speak out against this orthodoxy. And yes, we were expecting the backlash from those that are pushing that ideology, but also balancing that with the actual transphobia that we mm -hmm. experience. So we're, I think we're in a sort of a double bind when we speak out. And yet I think we have potentially the strongest voice in this because um, I mean, you said it beautifully in, a, in an email to, to that clinician that is speaking out that the left won't listen to the right. Mm -hmm. So I think the right has caught on to this problem, mm -hmm. but the left, because we're, they're political opponents, they're always going to butt heads. Right. So it's, it's when, you know, gay, lesbian and trans people start speaking out about this. I think this, it's really going to turn, you know, shift that needle, but there are, some of the backlash we received from like the feminist contingent, they don't want us to get any of the credit for, for shifting that needle. Right. They, mm -hmm. like, so we do see, you know, this very vicious transphobia <laughs> yeah. backlash too. It's like, no, you should, you put, you, you yep. get in your place and, and shut up about this. Cause we don't want the world to know that any of you are sane or that you, any of you care about other people. And we don't want you to get any of the credit for speaking out about this. So yep. we, we get it from all sides. Right. Yep. But yeah. But but what I really wanted to drive home in, in our talk today was just this impacts more than just you or me. 
like this, this impacted my entire family. And I do think I, you know, I, we were at one point, certainly not a problem free family, you know, and as I described in that statement, there were things that we were challenges that we were facing as a family that were pretty brutal and stressful for all of us, but we were, we were a loving family and we were doing work together. That was really, I think, set the kids up for success in the in the first three years uh, that we were together we saw amazing improvements in the mental health and stability of these kids and that is what these trans activists have damaged is they ripped apart not just me but ripped apart an entire family and and i'm i'm pissed i'm angry about that that it's impacted the trajectory of those kids lives because of this bullshit, because of the trans activists and because of transphobia, those things coming together and, you know, converging on a point of just of destroying a family that was on that was that was on a healthy trajectory. And I hold them accountable for that. Yeah, these these two, it's, it's just like, like when you talk, talk about war and you talk about, you know, these these, you know, competing uh, motives of you know those those on high and and it's it's <clears throat> yeah the, the the people on the ground who are actually damaged who are actually being hurt by um yeah sorry i lost that train i didn't lose the train i, I lost the ability to articulate it so yeah people get there. so caught up in the, the twitter wars and stuff and forget that there are, are real people just trying to live their lives and figure this stuff out and do the right thing Right. And it becomes in, you know, like some of the feminists that I interacted with on online, you know, that, that were spewing just this awful hatred saying, this is a war. This isn't a time for niceties. It's like, you know what? You're, you're hurting real people. Right. Right. You know, and then uh, even Posey Parker at one point, and she didn't name us, but she was obviously talking about us and gender dysphoria Alliance and, and saying that, any basically saying any trans parent is an abusive parent just because they're trans. It's like you were saying that at a time that I where I was battling for my kids' safety and well-being in court and against an abusive father and all of that. That's where I that's that's where I was situated within my family is going to bat for these kids while this idiot who's never met me in the UK blasting that just by being trans. I was somehow the yeah. the you know doing harm to these kids. No, it's all this political shit that caused harm mm -hmm. to my kids. I I always like I say on on and on like <clears throat> we're like there are so many more you know sane reasonable trans people who see what's going on and they don't say anything about it. And I have a lot of um, uh, not anger, but I, but it, it it definitely frustrates me. It's like I know that there's so many more of you and I out there, and of you know Mars and Buck, and of you know you know Debbie and Corinna, and like there's so many of us out there that are completely silent. And when you know when I hear the details of everything that went down for you coming out and speaking out, it's like, well, no shit, they shut up and keep their heads down, <clears throat> and yeah. Because I, if they're if they're in the trans community, it'll be immediate loss of of community if they start speaking out. Yeah, and if they're yeah. not living in the trans community, they could face the transphobia from whatever community they're 
they're surrounded with. So it does, it does. I, I get it. I get why people yeah. aren't either don't understand what's happening. I mean, most of the friends that I had in that, around that community who are, you know, living style trans guys, just, you know, happily, happily married or whatever they're doing, right. They're doing their job and just living their life. And they're actually unaware of how weird things are getting in, right. out there. Right. <laughs> so, so a lot of them are just completely oblivious to what's happening too. Yeah. But they would, uh, you know, it, it is a huge, the stakes are high for if, even if they did understand it, you know, I would, I did talk to some of them about what's happening and they're like, what really? Like they were shocked. And so it's not that they don't care. They just don't know. But if they know, yeah, the stakes are pretty high for them to take the risk to, you know, to out themselves. Yeah. yeah. And there's no going back. Once that information is yeah. out. Yeah. You can't put you it can't, back. You can't yeah. put it back at back in the box. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, I feel like I was like, I, this, this, this required no sacrifice or courage on my part. And, 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 and I'm like, so I've, I've lost not like I've told you about this plenty. It's like, I've lost nothing, but I've gained a lot. So like, like I, so for me, for me, it's easy to be like, you know, why, you know, why doesn't everybody like, if you've got this on your conscience, just speak up. But for me, it's only been like, <clears throat> it, it, yeah, it's only been a net positive because that's it. I came from a community that was very, very far left, but I'm not like in a community sort of, I mean, I've got, you know, like friends around me, but they're pretty normal, like not politically, I mean, they're, you know, typical lefty, but not, they're, they're not the new left. They're not, you know, for lack of a better word, woke. you know, they're just, you know, what we used to know as, you know, just general, you know, uh, Western conservative, Western liberals, excuse me. Um, and, you know, I, I, I knew, you know, some people will obviously find out a lot about me that I don't want them to know. I mean, I'm obviously out here just, you know, saying, you know, like the most, most personal and private details of my life, but it's like, and that's not comfortable, but I know it's useful and all, all it is, is a discuss. like, it's, yeah, it's like, I feel a little bit naked a lot of the time, but it's like, I'm not really losing anything. Um, no, I'm, I've never been, you know, uh, concerned about my physical safety. Never, never thought that it would cost me legitimate, like, like, and like real, uh, you know, family and and friends. Like, I, I've never. <clears throat> so yeah, I, I your, your everything that happened to you is kind of like kind of helped me put into perspective. It's like what people can lose, what you lost, what a lot of other uh, trans people, you know, will will lose by by trying to take on uh, this. This war, because yeah, it, it is. It's, it's it's coming at us from three ways. Because yeah, you've got the you've got the trans activists who want us to shut the fuck up, get in line, and and if and the, the vitriol, like just the animosity, mm -hmm. is just so so bad from them. And then uh, then you've got the 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 radical feminists who say we're groomers just by existing, just by speaking. Um, and then and then you've got you know. You know the vast swaths of the rest of the of the world that are like, yeah. They also think we're we're groomers and uh, predators for existing, and uh, uh, yeah. So I can understand why people just shut shut up. I I just don't have a yeah. I, I don't have that shut up functionality in my brain. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not in my nature to walk away from a car crash, right? Like when somebody is, I'm in a helping profession. I mean, I. I I couldn't see what was happening and just 
Right. How do you ignore that? Like once once you sort of see the damage being done to to potentially thousands of young people, how do you just? I I couldn't. Yeah. It's just not in my nature to say mm, I'm gonna, I'm not. You know, I mean, I guess I could have just said I'm just personally not going to do the work and I'll just shut up about it. But it's just not in my nature to to see such a such a problem on such a large scale that has the potential to damage so many people. I can't just ignore, I can't just forget about that. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Right. But I I do, a part of me does feel kind of resentful that, yeah, what it, what it's cost me, like that I didn't want trans to be the center of my life. And here I am talking about trans all the time. That's, that's the last thing I wanted to do, right. Is to come back and talk about trans stuff all over again and lose everything that I had built and created you know in order to to speak up yeah so it's yeah it's been frustrating it's been painful it's been stressful it's been a lot of things yeah yeah well i i obviously immensely appreciate it and i know um yeah hundreds and ultimately thousands uh of people uh do as well so yeah i know it's it's no uh no consolation for yeah yeah um yeah, everything that you've yeah sacrificed and lost, but it's um, it'll yeah it's gonna it's gonna have yeah shot. I can't when I'm emotional. I can't string words together. So anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's lit a fire under my butt even more though. So I mean, if the trans activists thought that by lashing out at me that they were gonna shut me up, I'm even more pissed now because they didn't right. just hurt me; they hurt my family. They hurt these kids. Um. So I'm definitely not going to be backing down now. And, and a part of part of why I was holding back too, was because I didn't want it to impact my kids. I wanted, I wanted to shelter them from how awful and vicious this whole and disruptive this whole thing is. So, so I didn't, yeah. So I, I kind of held back in order to shield them. I didn't want any of the backlash sort of blowing onto them, you know, which is why, you know, changed my name on social media and did my best to kind of, protect them that way and create a little bit of a, a shield and shelter. So now that they're out of the picture, I, I'm not, they're not dependent on my back. income. They're not dependent. Right. So nothing to hold back, nothing left to lose. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Thanks. Good work. Good work. Trans activists. Yeah. <laughs> uh. You know, but I wanted to mention too, you know, the one uh, I wrote, mentioned it in the article too, that, that one of my wife's friends uh, left me a nasty message on my Facebook wall this past week. And, you know, that frustrates me too, because I know it sounds like, so she has a daughter that's, that's trans identified and from what I, I don't really know them. So, but from just what I've heard and, you know, peripherally, it, that, she, that daughter does sound like she fits the ROGD profile. So it's really, and and I know that that friend of my wife's is is getting. It sounds like she's getting a lot of you know accusations of well you're a, you're a bigot because you're not supporting me as in your trans daughter and blah blah blah, which is sort of the the typical ROG narrative, right? Where it comes out of nowhere and parents say, well, I don't think that's what's going on for you, and then they get smeared as a bigot. So it's frustrating for me that I'm getting that kind of vitriol from from that friend, you know, while I'm hammering out how to protect kids like hers. Yeah. 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 
<clears throat> and it sounds like she <laughs> she kind of is exactly what uh, the 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 ROGD uh, uh, kids and their and their enablers are <clears throat> accusing these parents of. It seems like she's like actually uh, actually a transphobic bigot. So <laughs> that's that. Yeah. Uh, all right, should we wrap it up? Yeah, adventures and Laura, adventures and activism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's what we should title this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thanks for the chat. It was it's nice. To, I mean, I wrote the article, and that sort of describes a lot of the the details. But I I really wanted us to just have a conversation about it and talk a little bit about the spirit in which we decided to kind of put that information out there publicly. And, um, you know, it wasn't about airing my dirty laundry or it, it, it's not even, it's, it's not even about sympathy. It's just about, I wanted people to understand that there is a cost to speaking out publicly about this stuff. And, and that, and a reminder to people that there are real people, you know, yep. behind the screens. It's not just, you know, a Twitter war. It's not just a, you know, social media war. It's, it's not just a culture war that there are real people involved in this trying to have the conversation and do the right thing and and it's not we're not just individuals we're part of a whole system and a network and families that end up getting hurt by this as well yeah exactly all right thank you for telling it till next time yeah (laughs) thanks for joining us for this episode of the transparency podcast if you enjoy our content please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.